figure, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without costs from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, adulterers and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its walls and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcony, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Christophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does anything that is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Jill. Uh, good selection of um, jewels to think about. Uh, before we begin, let's, uh, I just want to watch this video clip. If we can get that going, that would be great. Uh, it's maybe familiar to you or not.
Father, as we gather in your name, pray that you would fill us and excite us and encourage us. Amen. Well, I don't know um, how you uh, feel. I don't, how many of you have seen that movie, by the way? Oh, you've missed a treat. Missed a treat. Go and watch The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it's on Netflix and uh, on Amazon Prime for next to nothing. Uh, it's a really, really powerful film with lots and lots of important points in it. But I particularly like this clip. Uh, because in it, it talks to us and speaks quite powerfully of the long journey to somewhere else. If you don't know the story, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, is, the, is a friend of somebody called Andy Dufresne. Uh, at the end there, Tim Robbins. And they have endured in a terrible prison together. Tim, uh, the, Andy escapes and makes it possible 
for red to follow him, hence the note and the money and how to come to and where to go. It's very, very important, and it evokes, it evokes a lot of powerful emotions in, in, in me. I, I, that's about the first time I've watched it without welling up, but I did have the, so I didn't watch the whole film beforehand. But it's an important thing. It talks about our journey, and it talks about the idea of hope, and we see the response in red, in, in red to, to the hope that's been offered. We see that he, uh, he, he rejects uh, the, 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 the world, the life that he was heading for. The room he lived in had, had a previous prisoner in it who, who had taken his own life. Uh, he rejects uh, just the system that he's now compounded by. And he talks about the excitement of being a free man. Was that your experience of becoming a Christian? The excitement of a free person. That is such a powerful, powerful thought. And he's excited by it. And he wants to see his friend again. And his friend has promised this place where the oceans are so blue you can forget everything. And it's a wonderful, wonderful clip. And I think there's a lot of theology in that film, which was written uh, by uh, Stephen King, strangely. Uh, but there's a lot of theology in there and there's a lot of truth. And the reason I've shown it is that sometimes we need to have something hopeful to hold on to, something that's really going to motivate us and remind us of our purpose for existence, why we're here. And, and whatever feelings that may have welled up in you, as you think, if you're not familiar with the film, it'd be much harder. But what are the things that we're looking for? What are the things that we're hoping for? Which is why chapter 21's been written. Chapter 21 is there to remind the reader all of this stuff is going on. All of these things are happening, and, but this is why. This is where it's heading. This is why it's important to change the way you think, to, to, to follow what you've been taught, and, and to have a, a sense of hope. So hopefully it would evoke in us, as it may have done, the, the first readers uh, in the Greco-Roman world in Asia Minor. We've, we've looked at the circle and the life that they live in. We've looked at the cities that the letters were written to. And we've concluded life was pretty tough. We've concluded that life was pretty hard. That if it wasn't about uh, God, it was about, uh, if it wasn't about worshipping false gods, it was about colluding with an empire that didn't, you know, didn't trust God at all. And if it wasn't about that, then it was about colluding with or, or being under pressure to worship false gods. Or you couldn't make your way in the world economically and commercially because everything was set against God. And when the world is set against you, you need hope. You need something to hold on to something that will give you a, a reason, something that gives you a reason for the life you're living, a reason, your golden rule, if you like. And we need those things just as much as the early Christians do. We need them just as much as they had them. Um, so what is going to keep them going? In verse chapter 21, um, we have the 12th and the final then I saw from the Apostle John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Ian, could you skip two slides for me, please? I think it's two. 
One, two, there we go. That was on Google, that was perhaps the best, <laughs> best picture I could find that sort of matched the text. There were some more imaginative ones, there were some more colorful ones, uh, but that I think is really important because what they've done is that John is reminding the reader that they have to pick between two lives that are portrayed as city women. There's the city woman Babylon, whose destruction we have spent all about five chapters reading about. And then there's the city woman Jerusalem, who brings hope. City woman Jerusalem, who is about purity. City woman Jerusalem, who is about being united with God. Very important and powerful uh, images. And we start, we see that this new heaven and the new earth had passed away. At the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no longer any sea. I'm not going to go verse by verse, but the sea for the Jewish reader, for the early Christian reader, uh, would have meant sort of uh, turbulence, evil, uh, all sorts of destructive forces. The sea, I know we live near it and some of you enjoy it, but it was not so for the early church. The Jewish mindset was that the sea represented evil. Think about it, and we need to later on anyway. In, in the beginning of Genesis, the spirit hovers over the waters. The waters are turbulent. They're in opposition. Why aren't they doing what God wants? So the sea has always had these images of being against God. And so we see this new, create, this new city, and it comes out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. So this city woman, it is a place, it represents the church, it represents the people, it represents what God is calling us to be part of. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And this voice declares, and it's a voice of God because it comes from the throne, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be, with his, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. It's very reminiscent if you think about marriage vows. This declaration that these two parties that have been apart for so long are now brought together and now united. And it is God's work that he is bringing them uh, together. The union uh, of God and his people is pictured almost as this, this marriage, this heavenly uh, wedding. And we find that there are two, I think, some ideas that we, as we're looking at this, as we read through the chapters, there are two things that particularly struck me. Uh, that I want to draw out. Um, the first idea is that there are some things that are not compatible with this marriage between God and his church. There are some things that won't go together, and they fall into two little groups. Um, there are, there's some things that aren't there because they are part of the old order. In verse 4, we read that every tear, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This old order has gone. And that's, that, that, I think, is hopefully fantastic news, isn't it? Because we live in a world in which we constantly are battered, niggled by, struck by, or contending with things that cause us and drag us down. They are the order that which, in which we live. And they niggle away at us, and they pick at us, and they make us less than we are. And our sin sometimes is, to, is to, to, to just give up and despair and say, that's how it is, and forget that it's not the end. Hands, I'm not going to ask for a hands up, 
But sometimes we go, God, is this it? Asking you, have you ever asked in your heart, is this it, God? Because that's, that's, that's forgetting. And I don't want to beat us up because sometimes, as I said last week, sometimes we just have to acknowledge that that's where we are. But it's not it. It's not the end. But it's important. Those things will have gone and they are the, the consequences of other people. Who was it who said that hell is other people? I can't remember, can't remember who it was. But, but God is dealing with those things. That those things, the pain of them, the memory of them, is taken and it's wiped away. It's not taken away in a kind of in a robotic, clinical kind of way. It's done in a tender, parental way. That's so important. It's not like we enter into a relationship and we're, we're suddenly changed. No, we're entering into his relationship where God is working on us all the time. And he's preparing us for this place where those things will be no more. They won't impact us anymore, and they won't shape us anymore. We will be instead lifted by God. And they're not part of the new creation, for, for those things are going to be part of the refreshing uh, life that is there, that is there. And the refreshing is for those who overcome. So we see this, that we see that in, uh, there's this spring in verse, at the end of verse 6. Drink without cost from the spring of the water, of life. And that's, that's, the, that's the invitation. That's the life he invites us into. This, this life that perhaps we haven't really fully engaged with. That's, that's there too. That's important. We now have access to this spring and it's for those who overcome. But we also read in this chapter that there, is, there are other things that are not there. Some things of the old order don't get in for a different reason the less holy, sinful experiences of the world which we, we encounter, which we commit, which we indulge in, which we meditate on, and which we consider. Those things can't be part of this, this place with him. It's the rejection of those things. God has, has decreed the cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, and those who practice magic, idolaters, and all liars. But well, that's excluded too. The new order is not a place for sin. The new order is not a place for, to indulge in our way of doing things, to seek power or authority or status in other ways. It's, it's not to be hidden. It's to be open. And so we find that God has these things that are not there any longer, things that cause us pain, and sometimes the pain we cause others. They need to be dealt with. And it's an early warning, isn't it? It's quite a powerful warning because last week we looked at uh, chapter 20 and we saw that Satan's doom was the lake of burning sulfur in verse 10 of chapter 20. And here we see that the lake of burning sulfur is the second death for those who have rejected Christ, who have held on to those things, who've clung on to those ways of living that are not of God, that can't enter this world with him means that we need to take sin seriously. It shapes us sometimes when it shouldn't. We use it when we definitely shouldn't. We have to take it seriously. We take it seriously when we remember the price paid for the forgiveness 
for sin. And it makes, us, it makes it important for us to reject it as a way of being as we are now. And the one, of course, takes more effort than the other. The character Morgan Freeman plays talks about the joy and excitement of being a free man. And accepting that forgiveness is, is wonderful and should shape us and, 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 and realign the way we think. But the daily living as a human being, well, that's a bit harder, isn't it? That doesn't always feel free. And so for the readers of, of, of this letter, the first occasion when it was published, John is, is giving them a picture of where they're heading to encourage us to make the effort worthwhile. For those of us who might have said, is this it? We've forgotten that the effort is worthwhile. We've forgotten where the journey ends. We forget who is awaiting us at the end. And that's important. And I said it last week in the morning. It's important that when we learn to, uh, when we learn to process stuff and say, that's not good for me now, we enter a way of being where we actually take a bit more control, and, but we allow things to be shaped by a different way of thinking, by God's way of thinking, and that's important. But that's the first thing, the things that are incompatible uh, in this new kingdom, in this new place with God, uh, the things that don't belong there, things that are, uh, are saddening to us, but also things that sadden God. They're not there either. But the second thing is that we find God's enormously gracious uh, provision of things and the blessing I've already mentioned this spiritually refreshing spring. We can go direct. Uh, it's freely available. It quenches the thirst uh, of all who have sought God uh, in Christ's promises. It's received by those who overcome, who continue, who keep going. It's a free invitation, but the qualification is you overcome. Have you overcome yet? We see a, an inheritance we find that it's, this is a brilliant place, that it's an inheritance, it's a new place to call our own. It's not the world we live in with its interrelational inter tensions and mess and our own shortcomings and other people's, more other people's shortcomings. Are they more or less important than my own? There's always a question, isn't there? But it's important. You know, we, we, this is a new place, and it's not going to be a creation, that, a new creation that's shaped like that. It's not going to be a way of life that's shaped in, in a sort of a, a balancing act between what I have to do to get by. It's, it's shaped on a new basis altogether, and it's not a creation, that, a new creation that's shaped and scarred by our way of getting by. It's, it's, it's renewed. The environment, our, the creation that God gave us is going to be uh, renewed and healed of all the scars of our commercial activity and mining. It's a new Eden in which we have a place. It's where we belong, but we belong in a new way. We read that there's a status. It's really significant. In verse 7, I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, uh, on the for the purposes of, of balance, um, some translations have put children, but it forgets the sort of Jewish culturally important factor that the son was the inheritor, not the daughter. And, and, and so what, what this is saying, it's not saying that only the men inherit, by the way, it's not saying that. It's just drawing allusion to the prodigal son 
where the father comes in and says, come in, this is all yours. That's open for all, but it's the status that's important. It's the son who stood to inherit. It's all of us who stand to inherit. And we forget, we can't imagine how much God has got. We can't imagine how pleased he is to give it. Can we? To be honest, we get excited about giving our kids presents at Christmas and stuff, but we have got no idea how excited God is about giving his, our inheritances to us. I think it's what he's looking forward to. Be like his birthday, in a weird way. We also see, let's have a look at this city in a bit. Uh, thank you, Jill, for reading out all of these, uh, these difficult um, names of uh, crystals, which I'm going to gloss over. <laughs> Except, except to say, who, who booed? <laughs> except to say a couple of things. Um, first of all, the Christ, Jasper. In chapter 4, um, God sits on a throne of Jasper. It's the, these, these gems are indicative of God's presence. That the city is his presence. He is there. In contrast to Babylon, which had garnered all of these wealth and some of the, similar, some of the same gems and precious stones... Babylon had done so by prostituting herself across the waters. But this preciousness is based on God, the purity of God's presence. It's about, it's about him, his abiding presence. You see, he, the things that are incompatible, sin in particular, God can't be in the same place as something that's unholy. And so it's, it's, it's an encouragement, isn't it, that in this presence we won't find the things that that causes fear or, or, or frighten us. We find also that the crystal is clear. It's clear as glass. It's pure. Glass was very difficult to make in those days. So clear glass was exceptionally expensive. And, and, the, and the street is gold-like clear glass. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating description. And, and I think this picture only comes, you know, can only come halfway close, can't it, really? But there's a sense of things beyond our recognition that um, just indicate that God is there. It's a level of, of purity, a level of freshness that we just can't comprehend. I will comment briefly on the gates. Uh, there are three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. It's quite interesting that we would sort of go never eat shredded wheat, wouldn't we? Why go that way round? Well, it's because in the east... In contrast to Rome, which is the Babylon of the time, Rome's biggest problem, and in fact their, their greatest enemy in the end, were the Parthians who lived in the east. And then their other biggest enemy were the barbarians who lived in the north. So this city, which has gates open all the time, is not a city in which you live in fear. And, and the emphasis is that even the enemies that you can think of don't bother with God. They don't try it on here. If you were somebody who was concerned about being attacked by Parthians, living in God's presence here is something you don't need to worry about. And I think that's an important thing to hold on to, isn't it? That sometimes on our road home, we say, oh, thank you very much, Ian, well spotted. Um, we, we, we need to be aware of what's around us, but actually we also need to be more aware that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. That's a really important word. That's a really important truth. I remember somebody telling me that on the day I left my theological college. He who is in you is greater than him who is in the world. It's true. 
Go, I think we should learn that one. This has got a memory verse, this sermon. Go and learn that verse. I will ask you next time. But it's important because it's about shaping our thinking. All of these, this imagery is about shaping the kind of God that we're looking forward to seeing. And so this, this city that we're heading to, this, this city woman that is calling us to be part of, our relation, part, part of a relationship with God, doesn't live in fear, is totally pure, uh, and can live and dwell in this, not extravagance, just glory. Because God is there. He lights it. His presence lights it. And the lamb is the lamp around the city. It's an enormously important thing. And speaking of enormous, the scale of the city from verse 15. Yes, there are echoes of Ezekiel 32 where the city is, you know, the, the temple is described. But the scale of it. If you were some downtrodden sort of Christian in the Greco-Roman Empire when, when sort of Nero was about to have his way, it would be quite refreshing and encouraging, I think, to know that there was something bigger than even Rome. And the scale of this city is greater than you could imagine. We need to know there's something bigger than what we're facing. Something bigger, uh, more powerful, more substantial, more lasting, more, uh, more stable than, than the life that we're faced with daily, the one that we contend with on a day-to-day -day basis. So let's think. Can I have the next slide, please, uh, Ian? So let's think. There are things that we can let go of. <laughs> there are things which we can say, I don't need this anymore. This isn't part of who I am intended to be. It's not who, I, it's not who God intended me to be. There's junk that we can leave. And we have to do that. And sometimes that's a process. Sometimes that's a process of repent repentance. Sometimes it's a process of reminding ourselves of God's grace towards us. We need to do that. And there are things that we can let go of. We need that. We need to remind ourselves. Is this something that God would do? That little arm, but that little wristband, would, what would Jesus do? It was brilliant, wasn't it? Because, of course, we'd all make up our own answers. But we do need to have the sense in which <laughs> Jesus would punch him. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> um, but we do need to remind ourselves that is this what, is, is what I'm facing? Is it something of the kingdom? Is it something that is of God? Is it something that's going to grow me? Is it something that's going to lead me deeper into God? Or is it something that's going to drag me down, make me feel worse, that that life that I've been promised isn't actually taking shape and that this, this is really it? So it's important, we have to be prepared sometimes to let some things go. But also, if we want to enjoy, can we have the next slide, please? Also, if we want to enjoy the life and endure the life that God gives us to overcome with, we need to remember his character. Look at verse 5 again. I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. God is constantly at work, recreating, transforming, redeeming, reshaping everything that he has made. He, that's his goal. That's what he wants to do. When Red finds Andy, he's escaped from prison only to repair an old boat. And if you think you're not as worth as much as an old boat to God, then you're wrong. 
God is constantly working on us. And I think that's encouraging. We should be able to remind ourselves that God wants us to change. God is helping us to change. God is able to help us change because he is bigger and more powerful than anything I face. That is the truth. That is the encouragement. That is the hope that we have. So I just pray that we would remind ourselves of these truths Enable them to shape our thinking. Enable them to shape our habits and our actions. And see what God will do as we make our way home. Now, I promised somebody that I would give a very short talk tonight, and I've lost that bet. But let's pray.